Lecture Notes, Hellenistic Philosophy, Epicureanism. The assigned reading for this week is Vaughn Chapter 7, in addition to the lecture notes. The Hellenistic Period. Last week, we concluded our lesson on ancient philosophy. In that unit, we learned about Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. The ancient Greeks contributed a lot to philosophy, but this lesson begins our study of philosophy as it begins to grow beyond Greece. So following Sparta's attack on Athens in the Peloponnesian War, Athens was no longer the center of Greek culture. Because of this, other city-states came to power, most notably Macedon, where Philip II, the father of Alexander the Great, was ruler. Philip was a powerful and charismatic leader, and he unified Greece. He was assassinated in 336 BCE, but his son, Alexander the Great, succeeded him. Overall, this was a period of a lot of political turmoil, as the previously close-knit Greek states ceased to be self-governing during this time. As a result, many Greeks felt a sense of alienation from a distant government and had a reduced sense of civic duty. In contrast, think of Socrates choosing death over exile from Athens. Clearly, Socrates felt an extremely deep tie and obligation to his city. Popular Greek religion was in decline, and many also felt that their history or their lives were outside of their control. Perhaps as a result, the philosophy of this time period was extremely practical. Porphyry, a Hellenistic Epicurean and a Neoplatonist philosopher, wrote in this time period that philosophy should provide healing for the soul. Specifically, quote, Empty is the argument of philosophy by which no human disease is healed. For just as there is no benefit in medicine if it does not drive out bodily diseases, so there is no benefit in philosophy if it does not drive out the disease of the soul. This is somewhat different than, for instance, Plato and Aristotle. Although we see the seeds of this kind of thinking in Socrates, and Socrates' emphasis on philosophy as caring for one's soul, and although Plato and Aristotle did care about ethics and living a good life, they were also very interested in other, more exclusively theoretical questions. I imagine that both of them would say that philosophy is supposed to care for your soul, but I can't really imagine them saying that all other philosophy is totally empty, as Porphyry suggests here. Epicureanism. Epicurus was the philosopher behind the Hellenistic school of Epicureanism. Although it's not exactly a super common phrase, you may have heard Epicurean used as an adjective for luxuries and pleasures. Like if you went out for an extremely fancy dinner and bought some very expensive alcohol to go with your already expensive meal, you might say, ah, how Epicurean of me, as you were indulging in such fine pleasures. However, this is actually quite a departure from what Epicurus himself thought. Epicurus did think that pleasure is the primary or supreme good, but as I'll explain shortly, he emphasized modest and simple pleasures. The view that pleasure is the only good is called hedonism. Thus, Epicurus was a hedonist. On the one hand, this view can seem totally intuitive. We often describe the wrongness of certain actions in terms of the pain they cause, and the rightness of other actions in terms of the pleasure they bring. For example, if a child asks you, why is it wrong to steal? You might say something like, well, it hurts other people. It makes them very sad. It takes away the things that they need. Or if the child asks, why do I have to help other people? You might say something like, well, because it makes them happy when you help them. 
However, there is also a problem with hedonism. This problem is best summed up by a thought experiment developed in the 20th century by a philosopher named Robert Nozick. It's called his experience machine or just experience machine. You can find out lots about the experience machine by Googling Nozick experience machine spelled N-O-Z-I-C-K. But the video below in the lecture notes also walks you through the thought experiment and the challenge it poses to hedonism. So before proceeding, please watch the following required video about hedonism and note that the narrator has a British accent. So he pronounces hedonism hedonism, but Americans do normally pronounce it hedonism. Um, I know I don't normally summarize the videos. It's a, it's a Wi-Fi video um, on hedonism, of course. But in this case, actually, I am going to really briefly depart from the lecture notes and give you, the listeners, a quick summary of the experience machine because I do want you to have it in your mind as going forward. So the basic gist of the experience machine is we say to you, if I create a machine and you can enter the machine and like any experiences you want to have, anything that will bring you pleasure, you'll, it'll be like a simulation. You'll be in the machine and you will think that you are really literally experiencing it. We've got this machine so perfected. You'll have no clue that you're not experiencing it. But if I say to you, okay, do you want to enter this machine and spend the rest of your life in this experience machine? We can give you a maximally great life, right? Whatever pleasures you might like to have, the machine will make you think that you're experiencing it. And again, it will be so real, you'll have no clue that it's not real. But if I say that to you now, I don't, maybe some of you would say, yeah, I'm gonna go in the machine. Most people at least are like, what? No, I don't wanna go in the machine because we have the sense that real life matters more than just being pumped full of pleasure, right? That we'd rather have real experiences, including painful experiences or have our own struggle and not just kind of be like, quote unquote, pumped full of pleasure. Um, yeah, I don't want to depart too much from the script because I'd be unfair to the people reading the lecture notes, but that's a brief summary of it. Very interesting. Go watch the video. Okay, back on script. So let's go back to Epicurus. Above when I said that Epicurus was a hedonist and thus held that pleasure is the supreme good, you might have jumped to the conclusion that hedonism tells us to be selfish and pursue physical pleasures like food, drink, sex. After all, that's what would bring us the most pleasure, right? According to Epicurus, no. Although we might think that strong pleasures are the best, and by strong, I mean things like indulgent food, sex, mind-altering substances like drugs and alcohol. Epicurus argues that we should avoid these pleasures because they are normally accompanied by pain. If you sleep around, you might get your heart broken. If you drink too much or eat too much, you might feel sick. Some mind-altering substances are pretty addictive and can really mess up your life and your relationships. More specifically, Epicurus argues that we experience pleasure when we get what we want. Or in philosophical speak, pleasure comes from having our desires satisfied. If I'm really thirsty on a hot Texas day and I desire a glass of cold water, I get pleasure from drinking the water because it satisfies or fulfills my desire. On the flip side, if water is nowhere to be found and my desire is frustrated, I will experience pain. Epicurus Epicurus then argues that there are three kinds of desires, natural and necessary, vain and empty, and natural, but non-necessary. So by now you know me well enough to guess what I'm gonna say next. Let's unpack what these labels mean. So first, natural and necessary desires. They are necessary for life and natural to us because they sustain life. 
So desires for food, shelter, water, these are classic examples of natural and necessary desires. Desires for power, wealth, or fame, however, are what Epicurus would call vain and empty. They are not necessary for living. And furthermore, Epicurus notices that these desires are never satisfied. When I desire water on a hot day, my desire is fully satisfied once I've had water to drink. But the desire for wealth, on the other hand, might keep going and going. I get more money, but then I just want even more and even more, etc. Epicurus argues that we should try to get rid of vain and empty desires. Finally, natural, but not necessary. A classic example of this kind of desire might be, for instance, a really indulgent food. Just before typing up these lecture notes, for example, I had some really delicious fudgy chocolate ice cream. Now, strictly speaking, human beings don't need ice cream to survive. In that sense, a desire for ice cream, or you can pick your other favorite dessert if you have some other favorite dessert, is not necessary. But ice cream is a kind of food, so the desire for ice cream and other delicious desserts is still natural to us. About these kinds of desires, Epicurus says that we can indulge them if, for instance, ice cream happens to be available. But we don't want to become dependent on satisfying these desires for our happiness. In other words, Epicurus is arguing that you should live a life in pursuit of pleasure, but you should take the long-term view and live a life devoted to simple, enduring pleasures. Epicurus himself lived up to this. He lived on an estate with many of his friends, probably a version of what we in the modern world would call a commune. The friends worked together, ate a simple diet together, and talked philosophy together. A bit of a plot twist, huh? When I first started talking about a life devoted to pleasure, your mind probably went to wealthy celebrities, shopping sprees, extravagant parties, but instead it turns out that for Epicurus, the happiest and most pleasurable life would be a life spent in the country gardening, eating a modest diet, and engaging in philosophical debate with your friends. Although these exact things might not sound very pleasurable to you, Epicurus's argument against vain and empty desires is pretty plausible. He argued that people who have less are just as happy as people who have more, so long as their basic needs are being met. There is now some empirical research to back this up, by the way. For instance, as long as you have enough money to meet your basic needs, having more money does not make you any happier. In fact, Epicurus argued that people who try to satisfy these outsized vain and empty desires for luxury invite pain. The desire for more than we need can overwhelm us, turning us into ever-striving consumers who are never satisfied, and we end up even more miserable. Happiness and death. You might remember the idea of atomism from the pre-Socratics. Similar to Democritus, Epicurus believed that reality is made up of infinite, continually moving atoms. But for Epicurus, this materialistic worldview has strong implications for ethics. Although Epicurus believed in the existence of gods, he thought that they didn't really have anything to do with humans, and he certainly didn't believe in an immortal soul that continues to exist after death. Rather, Epicurus argued that death is the absence of sensation or experience. But if death is 
literally not experiencing anything, then why should we be afraid of death? There's nothing painful or fearful in it since we will have no sensation or experience of our death. This is what motivates his hedonism. Since there's no experience and thus no pleasure after this life, Epicurus thinks the way to live is to pursue pleasure while we can still experience and enjoy it. And furthermore, since there's no sensation or existence after death, Epicurus thinks we can actually enjoy the pleasures of this life without a fear of death hovering over us. 